Hi there. We have a favor to ask. If you're enjoying the DLC Live podcast and you're listening on a platform that lets you leave a rating or a review, leave us a five-star rating. Maybe take a minute to write a quick review. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Now let's get on with the show. Welcome to DLC Live, your source for educational and inspirational interviews with mental health experts and advocates from around the world. Now, here's your host, creator of the DLC Anxiety Worldwide Mental Health Community, Dean Stott. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's Recovery Room. I hope you're all okay. Hope you're all not feeling too anxious. If you are, then this is the place to be uh, for anxiety um, recovery people. So myself, Josh, Kim, Andrew, four people who've been through it, come out the other side. And we're going to be talking today about uh, fearing emotions themselves, so the the response uh, to emotions. So it's going to be a really good, really interesting chat. Now, guys, um, the latest podcast is out on DLC Live. Uh, the link is in my uh, bio. Um, go and give it a listen. It's a great one on children, teenagers, and, and speaking with adults and anxiety. It was a really, really informative chat. So if you don't follow DLC Live, the podcast uh, Instagram, go over and follow it. But yeah, let's get into today's. Um, let's see if the guys are ready. Good morning. Good evening. Good afternoon. <laughs> I'm just waiting for the other two. Kim, you're punctual as ever, but unfortunately... The same can't be said for Josh and Drew, even though they were just in the messages. Not <laughs> just <laughs> terrible. Um, so you've already done a live today, yeah? What was it on? Uh, today we did. It was actually impromptu. We talked about relationships and how to manage them at this stage in the in the pandemic. I think everyone's getting a little tired of each other at this point, and so I wanted to address that, <laughs> and it was a really great conversation. Yeah, I'd love to know the statistics of how many people didn't make it through in um, the lockdown yeah. relationship, because you can imagine, can't you, everyone's in their own routine, set routine, and then suddenly you've got to spend 24 hours with, with someone who you may not have been spending so much time with, and Right. Uh, can show. Right. Yeah. We were talking about the fact that when you get married, you have um, like you go to marriage counseling. I had we had to go to marriage counseling to be married through a church, and they asked you all these questions, but there was no question saying how would you handle a pandemic, right? <laughs> like that wasn't something that they told us to to prepare for. So that was really interesting. Fantastic. The other two have now arrived: um, Josh and Drew. What up, guys? How how are we doing? Hi, Dean. It's always lovely to see you. And Dean. Going on, guys? Um, Drew, I think you wanted to... I think you picked the topic for this week. Um, I don't know if you just want to give a, a quick explanation why you picked this topic uh, and, yeah, just get us kicked off. Sure. So the topic this week is emotions and being afraid of your emotions and how that sometimes stands in the way of progress and it keeps us a little bit stuck. And I picked the topic just because it's something that comes up all the time in my community, all the time, uh, where people talk about how they struggle as soon as they feel anxious, of course, but sad, even happy, excited, uh, low, down, angry, disappointed. Like when they feel emotions, they feel like they get overwhelmed by those emotions and they begin to fear them. Um, and so it's a big enough topic that I thought it was worth a discussion because I know a lot of people struggle with that, processing their emotions. 
Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that anxiety anxiety itself is a emotional response, um, especially people who are saying, how can I get rid of it? How, how, do, how can I not feel anxious again? Well, do you know what I mean? The body wouldn't be working right if it wasn't to feel this response. Um, Kim, uh, Josh, you got anything on it? Uh, I remember a time when, um, for, for many for many months actually, where I was doing well, and because the emotions of joy were so alien to me, when I experienced joy after a long time, particularly after an anxiety disorder, or and I was so used to checking in on on my anxiety and checking to see how I felt, that the the, the the emotions of joy and happiness actually became quite alien. And then, and because that took me off guard, it did then make me anxious. So, so it's really normal for um, for that to happen. Um, and obviously, some of the common thoughts associated with that is, "Oh, I'm feeling too much joy. What if I'm developing um, a psychological disorder? You know, or what if I'm developing a mood disorder?" It's like, well, no, actually, it's just you've spent so long being hyper vigilant, threat monitoring. Um, in a state of threat and because threat just overrule overrules a lot of kind of emotions doesn't it? it it doesn't make you happy it doesn't necessarily make you sad it just makes puts you in a state of threat but when you experience any of the spectrum of emotions that isn't threat it does feel a bit alien and, that, and that's completely okay well joy to add to that Kim. Oh, this this conversation is right up my alley because this is this has been my biggest struggle. I had an eating disorder, and it was all around this exact topic, which is I do not want to feel my feelings. What else can I focus on where I can sense a sense of control, and how can I pretend that everything is fine and make other people think that I'm fine because I had all these emotions? So this this is my this is my topic right here. A lot of um. So a lot of people don't realize that when you're anxious that one part of anxiety recovery is is, is being okay with being anxious, isn't it? It's not um, to avoid trying to be anxious or or anything. So I think um, feeling emotions, like you just said, Kim, is, is a really important stepping stone to anxiety recovery in general. Mm. I think right. there are like kind of two issues that go along here. One is... I know for me, my personal experience, and I know a lot of people share this, is every emotion when I was in the depths of the anxiety and depression became fear. Like every emotion became fear within very short order. Boom, a couple seconds after getting really angry, fear. If I got really sad, fear. If I got really happy or excited, fear. So I remember leaving my office one day and I was working so hard to be able to drive to the office and stay to the stay at the office and participate in life. And I got cut off on the road. Somebody cut me off, like really egregious, like almost killed me. And of course I got, I had a physical reaction to that because it's, you know, it's a little scary and everything. And within 30 seconds, I was in a blind panic over it. I was so angry that this person was not paying attention that it just set me into a blind panic. So there's emotions that immediately morph into fear and anxiety and panic. And then there's, I think, people who just even outside of the anxiety problem have been either taught or told or in some way think that emotions are too much for them. And that makes things really hard for them, too. They just think that they can't handle them for some reason or they've been told to not have them. I don't yeah. know if anybody has anything on that. That's always really heartbreaking to hear. Mm. 
I was I was just talking, and this is a little off topic, and then we can go into what you guys. But I was talking with a friend this morning about how my daughter is ten and she's starting to show some moods, right? And I was shocked at my instinct, which was to discipline her for them. Like, no, we don't take your attitude back back into your room. And I had to keep reminding myself because you know I'm untraining what I was taught is we don't discipline for mood. We you know that's not we don't get disciplined for the way that you feel and your expression of that. And it was so interesting that everything I know, my, I caught myself before I did it, thankfully to, to discipline is to be like, no, you take your attitude back to your room, young lady. And I realized that that was such a huge part of my way, you know, my way of growing up. Yeah. I wonder how many, um, parents do, uh, discipline on the basis uh, of emotion. That'd be, mm. Mm. I, I think a lot. A yeah. lot. A lot. And I think that's because, again, society used to be that we have to, like, look happy and not bring our problems to the to the, the forefront. I think the cool thing is we're all having these conversations and we can all talk about feelings now a little more than we ever were. Yeah, the one thing that I hear often is that people that are kind of told or it's implied, like, hey, your emotions are ruining my day, say – their parents or their even their teachers or the partners in their lives like your emotions are harsh and my mellow man so can you put a lid on that yeah and that's hard because then when people get into an anxiety state and all it is is just this outpouring of stuff that makes them feel even worse that like well i can't show that at all i can't show anything yeah it's just i'm ruining everybody else's day i'm ruining everything with my emotions that's so hard to see when people right. get in that situation right oh, someone just put kids are so tested oh my gosh they really are this is true. You, you think you're an evolved person and then you have children. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It was really hard. Uh, and Kim, I can so relate to that because one of the things that I worked really hard when my girls were really small was to always tell them, like, you're never wrong to feel a thing. No matter what you feel, happy said, you know, I'm, I'm never going to tell you that you're not supposed to feel a thing right now. We can work mm -hmm. on how you feel it and how you express it healthily and not destructively, but like, it's okay to feel things. And I just mm -hmm. feel like maybe if more people heard that, we'd be having less of this discussion. I don't know. I mean, I'm no yeah. super parent, but it just seemed important to say that. So, yeah. yeah. The, the only thing I would say like right off the bat, which would be like one big tip that was so helpful for me, which is feel them. Feelings are meant for feeling, right? You're supposed to actually feel them. And it doesn't even mean you need to give them any attention. You just have to ride that wave um, of the emotion without displacing it onto somebody else or turning in on yourself and that has been probably the most important practice that I've had to use. Um, a lot of people as well uh, with anxiety don't realize that low mood can come with it um, especially Josh, uh, Kim, I get I see that a lot in the therapy room. Um, it's okay to, to have low mood and, uh, and feel uh, down in the dumps isn't it if you're going through an anxiety disorder. Uh, absolutely. I mean, <clears throat> one of the uh, most important lines said to me during my recovery when I was um, working with a therapist and also working, doing a lot of self-help as well, which is um, the body always has a remarkable ability to always bring you back to balance, unless obviously you've got a chronic condition like Addison's or diabetes. But when it comes to things like the anxious response and all the other factors of, of, of taking care of 
The body always wants to come back to a, to a default state. And the only thing that stops you from, stop it from doing that, and I'll be drawing again from a lot of the theory of metacognitive therapy here, which I'm not trained in, but I'm learning about and will train in one day. Um, but it makes so much sense is that when you give the mind and body an excuse to, to come back to a state of balance, it will. But unfortunately, sometimes we as anxious people, and I know I spent a year in my own house not leaving it, is that my rumination, my safety checking, my compulsion checking, my seeking empty reassurance, Googling, basically doing everything that non-anxious Josh would be doing, prevented my body from coming back to a state of balance. That's why people with, uh, uh, with sticking to the, the theme and the topic of today, non-anxious, you wouldn't mind if you were angry or elated or, or, or grumpy or tired. But, but when we're in a state of threat monitoring and, we, and we're afraid of our anxiety, we're constantly scanning for anything that's different from the norm. And that includes positive emotions too. Uh, and what you've got to say is, it's okay. Allow yourself to feel like, like that, like um, like Kim and, and Drew said, because even, <laughs> it's kind of a cynical and depressing view, but like even the happy thoughts are, are fleeting, mm -hmm. but that means so are the sad thoughts too. Yeah. And that's what you've got to remember. Okay, I feel like shit at the moment, but I know like every emotion, it passes, and that's okay. Yeah. I just find it, yeah. So Sorry, someone just put, do you practice the feelings in the same way as anxiety sensations? I do. I, I do. I think that you do. It's pretty very similar, right? Yeah. I, I actually do something slightly different. Um, some emotions are helpful and some aren't for me. Um, if it's something like anger, if it's a consuming emotion that's debilitating, like anger or acute anxiety, what I actually do is not, I don't sit with the emotion and I'm different to a lot of therapists like that. I don't see that, how that's productive. Um, if it's on a, to a particular topic, like I'm sitting doing talking therapy and, and then there's, there's, there's deep residual anger coming out, that's a bit different. But when it's like anger towards an anxiety disorder or acute anxiety that you know that it's just a false alarm just triggering, then I actually say, don't sit with this, sit with it as such. Don't push it away, but just like let it be there. But then focus on something else that you know is more nurturing. However, if it's a feeling of joy, enjoy it, lean into it. It's lovely, <laughs> indulge it, because it always goes. I mean, <clears throat> carry on. <laughs> That's true. I, yeah. I always think it's amazing that so many people. It's not amazing. I think you know we we can understand why they feel this way. But at a low mood, uh, a negative air quotes negative emotion will trigger that like, oh my God, what if this never goes away? Which I know that that is a really common fear. Like, I'm sad today, does that mean I'm becoming depressed? What if this never goes away? What if I'm never happy again? But when we get happy, we never think, what if I'm just happy for the rest of my life? Like we, we don't worry about that, the happiness won't ever go away, but we do worry that the sadness will never go away, which kind of tells you something. Like that's not, that's not logical, it's not reasonable, it's, it's fear talking. So that's kind of a big deal too. And I used to think that like, oh, I'm never gonna be happy again. I'm never going to be happy again. And th that was really difficult because it was also maybe a misinterpretation of what happy is. Like I had the therapist that I had for a little while was such a gem. And I remember her like teaching me, well, wait a minute, what do you think happy is? And I thought it was this like incredibly like joyful, like nirvonic feeling like, oh, look at my kids. They're like my heart. And she was like, well, tell me what you like about your car. And I tell the story off. And I'm like, I don't know, the seats are heated. She's like, there you go. That's happy. 
And I'm like, <laughs> it, it, it is like, I was mind blown, but so much of it, I think in terms of fearing emotions is also the unrealistic expectations of what they're supposed to be or not be like happy has to be way up here and there can never be anything below the midline, but that's not true. That's not realistic for anybody. No. I like the stoicism uh, view on happiness. Um, like you say, a lot of people think that it's like a euphoric feeling, um, but I, I don't agree with that either. I definitely think it's just a just a state. You can be happy and have sad moments and anxious moments and depressed moments. Um, happy is just another uh, emotional response. Yeah. What about the idea of can't handle? The emotions will be too much. I hear it all the time. I don't know if you guys have any feedback on that. It's just too much. They're too big. The emotions are too big. Well, like, when, what's... Right. Interestingly, when people buy Untangle Your Anxiety, the only negative feedback we have is that they're overwhelmed with joy. And that's okay. <laughs> and, and if you want to lean into <laughs> I would. Let, let me jump in. Really good exposure therapy is buying Untangle Your Anxiety and reading it. From page to page. <laughs> no, see, for me, the first thing I would look at, when someone says it's too, they're too much, they're too big, I can't handle them, I would actually first look at the emotion is the first struggle. And often when we have an emotion and then we judge it, now we have two struggles. And I think a lot of the reason people perceive an emotion as too much is because they're not just handling the emotion. They're, they're handling a lot of judgment about the emotion, which is double the pain, right? So I always encourage people, first, just practice the art of not judging emotions as good or bad. You'll be shocked at how much relief that actually brings because you're not handling double amounts of, of shame and blame and guilt, right? Like having anger, this was big for me, having anger is not bad. I used to think anger made me a... a a bitch, sorry, if I'm, I hope I'm allowed to swear. Like I used to be so afraid that as soon as I felt anger, I was just a horrible person, like a, a really nasty woman, right? And I had this idea of what that nasty woman, and as soon as I took that emotion out and that judgment out, anger was just anger. And that was really helpful for me. And same with sadness or guilt or shame or all the emotions is to first take the judgment out can actually make it less painful. That's a real good point. I just... Um, someone just said, ask for some advice on um, what happens if you can't cry. That's Ooh, okay. That's good. Right. Lots, yeah. lots of people can't cry. Um, it, it could be, again, a form of dissociation. That could be a trauma response. It could be that you're just not a crier, right? Like, I'm not a particularly big crier either. How, while I will cry in my own distress, but I wouldn't cry at a movie and so forth. I think it's important not to judge that and to just trust that when when and if you're ready to cry, you will. Who says, where's the rule that says you're supposed to cry? Yeah, I think that speaks to that for sure. Just like, Kim, when you said, you know, the idea that being angry somehow made you bad. I, I think there are a lot of messages out there that people get stuck on too. Anger is unproductive. Anger is this. Anger is you should never be angry. You should never feel resentment. These are negative or unproductive emotions. And the same thing holds true with like how sometimes we both we both revere being very staid and stoic and hiding our emotions, but then we also gushingly praise people who openly show their emotions. So mm -hmm. if I can't blubber at this movie, then does that mean I'm something is wrong? What right. am I missing? The other thing that sometimes why well, you can't cry, I couldn't cry for years because of honestly, it was the medication that I was on. 
Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to start a big meds discussion, but if you're on an SSRI, there's a really good chance that you can't cry because of that. It's just very, very, very common, or they, it's very rare, or the crying is over really fast. Like you, you know, you're supposed to, or you want to, but you can't. So that was a big mm-hmm. deal for me. Yeah. 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 Wolf. So I, this is my dog, and he's about three three rooms away as well. <laughs> yeah. He's just he's just really excited. He's just managed to locate untangle your hands. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he was happy that he, that anger wasn't he's, bad. He's, enjoy, he's enjoying. Right. He's embracing his strong emotions. Strudel the dog. Shut up. Sorry, Dragon. <laughs> I mean, no. Embrace your emotions. It's okay. <laughs> yes, we should be fully support them all. Yeah. <laughs> there. Um, yeah. There's loads of questions, so I'm just going to try and get through as many as we do because. I get so many DMs saying that we don't get through all the questions, but honestly, there, there are so many. Um, just like if we can keep the answers kind of short so we can get through. First, has anyone tried hypnosis and how does it work with emotions and would you think it was a good thing? Dre, do you want to kick off? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay far away from the hypnosis thing. I have, I have no... Full disclosure, I have no personal experience whatsoever with hypnosis. Yeah. My opinion on his hypnosis is, is formed purely by some of the exaggerated claims about what hypnosis does, because I've heard it say that it will fix everything from smoking to overeating to eating disorders to panic disorder to growth. It does everything, evidently, according to some hypnotists. And I'm sure there are great hypnotists and there are not so good hypnotists or hypnotherapists, if you would call them that. So I don't have any personal experience with that other than I see a lot of people get really disappointed by hypnosis because they think it's going to do a certain thing and it and it doesn't. But I've been told by some really, I think, really good clinicians who who do incorporate hypnosis that it's a good tool in therapy sometimes in terms of maybe inducing relaxation states. Right. I don't know. I don't know if it is or it isn't. Uh, as I say, I have no experience with that, but I don't, I can't really say other than just be realistic about what you think hypnosis is supposed to do. <laughs> oh, great. If I start clucking like a chicken, it's Kim's You home. will buy untangle your anxiety. <laughs> will buy untangle your anxiety. <laughs> it worked. That's, Dean just got it. There you go. Um, Kim, um, do you have anything to say on hypnosis? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, you can use hypnosis for whatever. Hypnosis for anxiety disorders, no. The gold, One of my golden rules in my practice is that who gets the credit? So if you go to a hypnotist and they say, yes, let's speak to your inner subconscious and tell you you're brave and you can go and do all these things, that's great. But if at the end of it you're like, well, thankfully, thanks to hypnosis, I'm now no longer anxious, you don't get the credit. You never learn, and your brain never learns that it was you that could tolerate the, those anxious symptoms. And this, and I hear this quite a lot. I had hypnosis, and I could fly, and that's great. But then it kind of wears off, and then they do it again, and then they can fly, and, and then it's then the time in between flying it's shorter and shorter. It, for me, hypnosis only for anxiety disorders. I'm not saying it for other things. I've heard stories about smoking and things like that, and it's helped them. I'm not disputing that. But for anxiety disorders, for the for the, the majority of people here, um, I think it stops you from getting the credit for tolerating those sensations. It's another reason something external from you to to pin the credit to, as opposed to yourself, your courage, and your bravery, or 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 tolerating your emotions. The person asks, like, is hypnosis good for your emotions? Like, well, what are you trying to do with those emotions? 
do you need hypnosis to dampen them or make them feel less or help you escape from them? Like, no, you kind of don't, right? Yeah, and like Dean said, anxiety is an emotion. So yeah, yeah, you can tolerate a lot of that emotion. Yeah. Jen? Same. And everything that Rin's saying is exactly what I would say. Fantastic. So the next question is, um, not feeling anxious at all, but then afraid of when it will happen. Um, so they're actually going through a, a good period, but they're worried, is anxiety going to show its ugly head? What would your advice be? Don't judge anxiety, right? You're, what you're saying is that would be bad. I don't want that. You're resisting. You're trying to avoid it. And, and the more we do that, the more we train our brain to believe that anxiety is bad and wrong and we shouldn't have it. And it's bad when you do. Um, and so, you know, maybe continually reminding yourself, like, if it comes, I'll write it out like I have every other time, you know, um, I'll use my tools. I think that th there's nothing, no, there's nothing wrong with having anxiety. Yeah, that's con conditional okayness. Like, I'm okay as long as anxiety isn't here, then I'll say I'm doing great. But if it comes back, then it's a disaster and all mm. bets are off and I'm back to square one, which is just not true because of what Kim just said. I like yeah. that conditional okayness. I oh. talk about conditional okayness all the time. You never want conditional okayness. You just I want like that. okay. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. yeah. Always okay. Josh, we'll, we'll paint we'll patent that one. <laughs> <laughs> the latest book from DLC. <laughs> Conditional okayness. And then I just disappear. You never hear from me. Again. Like, oh, oh, what happened to him? Um, the next question is, how do I stop fearing um, a irrational thought? It continually gets stuck in my head uh, and causes so much distress, uh, sensations and emotions. Um, Josh, I'll let you kick off, seeing as though you've got a book about intrusive thoughts coming up soon. Yeah, just, just say that question again for me, Dean, so if I can get it right. How do I stop fearing irrational thoughts getting stuck again? Um, the thoughts create distress feelings, sensations and emotions. Okay, well, this would be, you know, this this goes to the OCD crowd, who, who um, mostly anyway, who, who which is uh, who, who Kim works with a lot. And, and I work with quite a bit, but because I work with a lot of anxiety disorders, it's the... Um, with your intrusive thoughts and stuff, which is what I'm writing about um, and stuff, it's it's for me, and this is only my opinion, but we can ha we have up to seven thousand different thoughts a day, and most of them are quite bizarre. A lot of them are inane, boring, but when we're really stressed, sometimes these thoughts from the very far end of our rationalization process, the bizarre even, can creep in, and when we've got a sensitized nervous system. And when we're already looking out for threats, when we're already not calm and our threat response is scanning our environment, our bodies and our minds for this danger, sometimes these thoughts can be picked up by us, by our threat response. And when we have a sudden intrusive thought like, what if I want to harm a loved one? What if I want to do something sexually inappropriate? What if this thing on my desk needs to be put a certain way? What if I need to check the plugs just in case my house burns down? What if I lose control of the vehicle and veer it across the central embankment, causing a 50-car pileup? Uh, what if I suddenly attack my boss? What if I do all these? We all have these thoughts, but when you're in a state of hypervigilance, 
those thoughts can suddenly be misconstrued as a threat. Bang. And you know it. And you know it's an intrusive thought because, bang, your threat response goes bananas. And you're like, and then when we feel that emotion, actually, that emotion is often mismatched to the thought. But obviously, we and sometimes we can misinterpret that as intuition, a gut feeling. My mind and body are telling me that this thought is somehow important, real, and that I should keep an eye on it. Because after all, all the thoughts are really shocking, aren't they? You don't get intru- I don't get intrusive thoughts of Halle Berry coming in giving me breakfast in bed. No, I get intrusive thoughts about drowning family members because that's horrible. That's the opposite of who I am. Now, they're just thoughts. We actually have 30,000 thoughts a day. 7,000 of them are different uh, around that anyway. I don't know if Kim knows anymore. Uh, that thought itself causes that feeling that overwhelming feeling of threat, dread, fear, whatever. What I always say to people with intrusive thoughts and what I say in my book and a lot of that is that it's never really the thought. It's always it's how it makes you feel. Are you willing to tolerate that feeling knowing that it's a false alarm? Or are we going to heed the false advice from the false alarm and start acting in a way like it's something that we need to take seriously? If you do the latter, it's they stick around. If you sit there and go, that's just a dumb thought. And yes, my alarm, my false alarm is kicking off because I'm thinking of poisoning my baby, but what a ridiculous thing. That's not what I want to do. The main rule is intrusive thoughts thrive because they're the opposite of who you are. The, the biggest reassurance question I get from clients and people is, well, how do I know it's not me? I was like, well, if you're worried about it, it's probably the opposite of who you are then, isn't it? You know? Uh, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, you've got to be willing to have that, that really acute fear response, but knowing with psychoeducation that it's a false alarm. You've got to sit with it. Don't repress it. Don't fight it. Don't misinterpret it. I hope that made sense. Yeah, I think a lot of people see that fear response. So they get the thought, like you say, they're worried about the thought, and then they get the emotional response. A lot of people... Um, See that as validation that the thought was correct, and that's where the interpretation comes in. Yeah, absolutely. Oh wow! I, if I'm reacting like this, then the thought must be real. No, it's not. It's just nonsense. Kim, uh, Drew, anything to add to that? Yeah. So, um, it, when thoughts get stuck, your your immediate response is to try not to get stuck on it, right? And have less of those thoughts. Um, and the, you know, the core principles of ERP is the more irrational it is, the more you should practice having the thought, right? And that's a lot of the work that, that we do, which is, okay, have the thought as many times as you can. You remember writing lines in school, like I won't hit my friends or I won't forget my homework. You could do the same for your irrational thoughts, have them on purpose, flood them, do it right imaginals, those types of that is actually where we trip the system and we show your brain, no, not only am I not afraid of these, I'm actually going to willingly have them from now. And that actually changes the neurobiology of your brain um, and changes the, that it, when it does set off that alarm in, your, in that threat response. One of the more interesting things I was told when I had uh, Dr. Martin Seif on the podcast was he was concerned. He, he said most people get really worried by those intrusive thoughts also because they're afraid that thoughts become uncontrollable impulses. And he was really adamant about like that's such a core fear about that. But that's not what happens. I don't know if you guys had that 
we have to really kind of educate people like, no, no, your thoughts don't become uncontrollable impulses. Yeah, I mean, well, my Steve's one of my heroes, so I'm jealous. <laughs> hey, you got to know people. <laughs> and the next question is, um, why are our emotions magnified during a simple argument? Oh. When anxious, um, I guess that's what happened to me. Well, I think. I, and I, so I would add on to that, that I don't think they're magnified. I think that they're just present, right? I think that if, if someone, this is the classic one in my family is my husband will say, calm down. <laughs> if you want to make <laughs> me really mad. What is he thinking? <laughs> he has, <laughs> I, oh, I could tell you so many stories. I think he likes to taunt me a little bit, but if you want to really create some big emotions in me, don't tell me to come down. Right. It's like, it's, so I think it's just, it's, it's not that they're magnified. He's, my husband is like the biggest jokester is I think that it's not that they're magnified. It's that you've been triggered and that's usually based on a belief um, and a past experience and so forth. So again, this is where I would say they just show up because they show up. Um, same with when there's been an injustice, right? If there's an injustice that happens, you're naturally going to go right to the top of the emotional level. That's not um, for any reason and that it just really matters to you, right? It's very much in line with your values. Um, so I'm curious to know your thoughts, everybody else. For me, it was super, uh, oh, sorry. Uh, for me, it was just super mechanical. Like if mm -hmm. I got angry, it would elicit an, a, a physical response because that's what humans do. And then I would freak out because now my heart is racing and I'm breathing heavy and I'm I get all the physical things that came along with the emotion. And so then it was the original emotion and then the fear on top of it. And that's yes. why it felt like it was, everything got super magnified and sucked. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, Michelle, that's like, I love this comment. I am calm. I am not angry. I'm not yelling. That's my favorite one. I am not yelling. I think um, also as well, and this is where, attach oh, I do like draw upon attachment theory. Um, because obviously I'm a humanistic therapist, so as well as a, as a CBT therapist, um, you, you can have intense emotional reactions like fear, despair, sadness, when someone close to you may give this off the symbol of threat that there could be a potential rejection. And even though your rational mind is like, yeah, I know this person isn't going to leave me. But if you've had a quite an unstable childhood, usually with parents that are bananas and don't show their emotions quite, either don't show them at all, show them sporadically or overly show them or whatever, attachment feeds directly to, my favorite word, the amygdala and the threat response. And that obviously a child's amygdala needs their parent to survive. Now, when we grow up and don't address those issues, um, that threat still remains. That's why people can often become possessive and manipulative because actually it's an anxious behavior. It's a bad anxious behavior and I don't condone it. But when you're in a, a potentially a heated argument with someone who you love and you notice these really strong emotions coming up, you know, it's just a mild argument maybe about, you know, who, whose turn is it to load the dishwasher? But if you notice that kind of really strong emotion, 
maybe then that's the kind of thing that, that can tap into attachment. And you know that's the type of anxiety when you're scanning faces for how they look, when you're cracking jokes to seeing if they're smiling, when you're overanalyzing their intimacy with you. Are they squeezing me hard enough? Are they uh, looking at me? Are they bored of me? And that's the kind of attachment anxiety that uh, I have worked with quite strenuously in the past. Um, and it, it, it's important. And actually, here's the weird thing. There's not really a therapist out there. There's some therapists out there that can do the whole thing, anxiety disorders and attachment, but there ain't many. And what I, what I do recommend is if you've got an anxiety disorder, go with go and do the, the basics, uh, the, the anxiety disorder stuff first, so the avoidance things, things that's really debilitating your life. And what I do say to people is actually maybe look at someone who specializes in attachment. Because if you're getting that kind of overwhelming stuff in those conversations, it's really beneficial. It was for me too as well, you know, daddy issues and all that. Uh, and now it really made me a, a, a more well-rounded, grounded person. Josh, would you say that um, attachment anxiety is, is always nurtured, so always because of uh, family members, et cetera? It, it sometimes depends. I actually find, um, and this is just my opinion, there's no, you know, and I've worked with lots of people. It's just my opinion. I found that the ones with the, the ones where you didn't know where you stand, that's what causes more attachment anxiety. The ones where maybe your parents or people around you are nice one day and really cold the next. Whereas I actually find the people that have absent parents or people that were, they just knew where they stood with their parents. Yeah, mum's a dick, dad's a dick, whatever, get on with it. Hmm. They actually do all right when they know when you know where you stand. But if one day you've got that wonderful, caring, nurturing side, and then the next day you've got the polar opposite, that can really play games with your head. And, 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 and that's when you start to placate, or placate if you're American, and when you start to constantly please. When we talk about fight, flight, freeze, and fawn, that's where the fawn response comes from as well. People usually conditioned from having that weird kind of relationship while growing up. I hope that's helpful anyway. I like drawing upon humanistic theory. I think it's pretty cool. Mm. Yeah, good stuff. Yeah, we'll get on to um, The next question is, um, why do I always fear that I'm always going to feel sad? I'm going through a really bad time at the moment and I feel like I'll always be stuck in it. Does anyone want to pick up on that one? They fear they'll they're afraid they'll be sad. Uh, no, they're they're sad at the moment. They're afraid that this will this is it. They'll always be like this. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that this is an interesting. I'll just bring a point about depression. Right? Is you know we have a lot of sadness, and then often with the story we tell ourselves around the sadness is when it can form into depression. Right? So if you are sad and you maybe add a, a, a story like I'm I'm wrong and there's no hope for me there's no help for me there's I have no worth these are the three main concepts of depression hopelessness helplessness and worthlessness is yeah it can actually thicken right but coming from more of a mindfulness perspective is if you can just allow you to again as we said before is to allow yourself to have the sadness and recognize that it's temporary without fixing a certain story to it actually then that is when emotions can transition through our our bodies right we can move on to the next emotion but if we're having sadness and we do add that story and it's not like we're doing it on purpose it's just that you know times are tough right now we may be doing that 
just be careful around the story you tell yourself. But the alternative is just to allow it to be a, a, a transitional emotion. And also this is where I'll often talk with my patients about is like, don't just focus on the sadness. Also look at what else is happening. Oh, I see a light. I see a tree. I have a pen. What color is the leaf on, you know, and, and bring your attention to other things um, can st- take us away from just ha- being hypervigilant and hyper aware of that one emotion. But then be part of that whole, like, I think I can't handle it thing also. Mm-hmm. Like, well, I have the sadness and I don't feel capable of changing things. I don't feel capable of carrying it. I don't feel capable of of doing anything different to, to, to improve my life. Sometimes I, I always feel like, you know, when it comes to the anxiety and depression thing that we talk about all the time, there's so much of that, like, I wouldn't say deficiency, but, but, uh, people are suffering from a lack of feelings of confidence and competence, especially emotional competency. Like mm-hmm. I just, if I'm, if I get sad, then I'm done because I can't possibly handle this sadness. I can't carry it. And I'm not strong enough to either see the changes I need to make or go through the, the confrontation or the change or whatever the, the difficult things, then they just think they're unable to do it, which is, I think in most cases, in almost every case, just not true. That's just a feeling that I just don't have the confidence to handle this and carry this right now. So I think it's always mm-hmm. going to be here. Um, well, I was just I was just reading through um, twenty three messages that I counted. Uh, very similar. What do you do when your emotions are, are too much to handle? So yeah. or asking that question. Yeah. Yeah, those are those hard things. I think you just have to you you show yourself that you can handle it, you know, in the end. Like, right. well, look, I, I did last time it happened. I did carry it. I did move through it. I, the wheels didn't fall off. You know, it's so much of it is experiential. We we learn confidence and competency, even emotionally, experientially by doing those things, mm-hmm. even though they're scary and hard and we think we can't. My right. two cents. Yeah. What, what what does not happen? One of the main things I hear when this comes with my practice is, what does not handling your emotions look like? Yeah. And actually, a lot of what I do is consi- is actually telling people um, and drawing upon what Dean says about stoicism is that you never not handled your emotions. Yeah. Name me one time where you didn't handle your emotions. Okay, you did, you chose to behave in a certain way. What did you never not handle your emotions? Okay, if you're doing, if you're behaving in a way that's angry and you, and you're doing things that aren't right, then fair enough. But when we're talking about anxiety, I always ask, when did when did you not handle it? Tell, what? give me one time you didn't handle it. Oh yeah, I was I was at a, I was at a party and you had to leave. I was like, you chose to leave, but you're still handling it. You know. Well, I think underneath that term is what they're really saying is I didn't handle it perfectly. Absolutely. Right. right. What they're really saying is I wasn't able to make it go away. And this is true with panic disorder, right? Like, Mm -hmm. oh, you tell me to have a panic disorder, a panic attack on an airplane. I'm going to cry. And I'll say, yeah, then your person sitting next to you is going to see that. And they'll say, but then I'm not handling it well. And I'll go, no, you're handling it beautifully. Crying in vol, it's a part of panicking. You might need to cry, right? Right. So. That's that's such an important, like, what are you actually asking for? Is handling it perfect? Is it handling it where you don't have to feel it? Is handling it that you didn't have additional other emotions along the way? Um, ask yourself, what what are you actually saying? What is your definition of handling it? I think that not handling it is exactly that. I should have been mm-hmm. able to prevent it. It shouldn't happen to begin with. If I feel that something is wrong and I'm weak, and when it did happen, I couldn't immediately get rid of it. 
So I, I couldn't hide it. it. Couldn't hide it. Couldn't make it go away. Couldn't change it. Couldn't turn you know negative into positive. I should just be able to choose happiness. Somebody should make a right. funny reel about that maybe today. I don't know. I'm just thinking. <laughs> with these, uh, with these new. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> Um, the next question, uh, anxious about physical symptoms. They always cause me sleepless nights. Not really a question, but um, yeah, um, anxiety at nighttime. Uh, we know how common it is and obviously anxiety, physical symptoms. What would your, your guys' advice be uh, surrounding anxiety that uh, occurs at nighttime? And why, why does it occur at nighttime? Um, is it because of the the less distractions throughout the day? So we're sitting with our own thoughts and feelings. Uh, what do you guys think? Yeah, I, I, I would say this goes right back to the emotional piece, which is when we are falling asleep, we keep telling ourselves we shouldn't feel anxious. And then we try to not feel anxiety, which often makes us feel more anxiety, which makes it harder to fall asleep. And now we're caught in a big cycle, right? Um, and, and also you've got this sort of belief of like, I should be asleep. And then that adds more anxiety as well. I don't think, I, I don't think here we, um, I mean, we could do a whole, whole recovery room on sleep anxiety easily. Um, cause it's such a huge issue. Um, but I, I would encourage, I always say the more you try to fall asleep, the harder it is to fall asleep. Yeah. Josh, um, your advice always sticks with me. What you say about someone who's saying, how can I get this eight hours sleep? How, how can I fall asleep um, when you tell them um, to not, to get up, yeah? <laughs> yeah, it's like I've, all, all my insomnia clients hate me. It's like, what's my homework? Stay up all night. <laughs> watch what happens. Go to work. Watch what happens. I won't be able to cope. I will be overwhelmed by anxiety and my emotions. I'll be walking around half asleep. No, you won't. And actually, yeah, just, you're a bit sluggish. Do it again. And when by the time they get to day two, it's like, I can't, I'm just going to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like, there you go. You, you remove the resistance and you sleep like a baby. And you learn that you can cope with tiredness. Yes. A absolutely, absolutely. It's straight, It's weird when you are, uh, Dean, it's interesting that like in the evening, my anxiety is usually non-existent. I mean, I'm, I don't get anxious that much anymore anyway, but like for me, it was always the mornings. And then by the by the evening, I'm like like a different person. It's like yeah, me too. Uh, that me. Morning anxiety is fine. I'll nail that in the morning. Go to sleep, wake up. I know exactly why that was for me because at the end of the day, the demands were gone. I wouldn't. Nobody was going to ask me to leave my house. My phone wasn't going to ring. There was no business calls. I didn't have to do any of the stuff that I was like cowering from. So the day was over. I had like a reprieve until the next morning, which was. That's where it was really hard again. Around three, four o'clock in the morning, which is when I'm usually like messaging Dean now. You know, <laughs> things would get things would get really dicey for me, and it was like, oh no, here it comes again. But at night, it was it was great. I was it was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. I heard you have like one hour sleep, and that. <laughs> <laughs> that's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. No one asked me about sleep. I'm not the person <laughs> asking about sleep. Um, just seeing a, a comment saying uh, someone saying that they don't want to live. Um, obviously. Uh, Seeking out help, uh, especially the therapist, uh, is really important. Don't, don't sit with that and seek out help immediately. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Depending on what country you're in, um, you could either go to the ER, call your doctor. There's in some countries, hopefully yours, 
the suicide prevention lines that you can call um, just to get you through this tough time. So don't be afraid to reach out to yeah. to someone who can help, right? Not not therapists on Instagram because they usually won't respond. You know, for, they're not giving therapy, but reach out to somebody in your area who can help. Great advice. Um, the next question, I'm fear. Yes, this is a really uh, really important question, especially with what's happening in the world at the moment. I'm fearing the inevitable loss that's coming. I'm afraid of how I'm going to handle this big emotion. Um, do you have any advice? I could step in on this. Yeah. And I'll be very honest and, and, and emotional. Uh, two, two members of my family in the past diagnosed with terminal illnesses, including my 14-year-old brother, of whom died at the age of 15. Um, I was told very early that he would die, and getting my head around that, was a lot to take in, actually triggered my original anxiety disorder. Um, what I would say is that personally from experience of working through grief and having anxiety and being afraid not to experience, uh, being afraid of how much it will be is that the suffering is happening already. You are not having a full jug of emotions hitting you when the, the moment finally comes. You are already grieving you're already emptying the grief jug. And when it does come, it hurts, but you will cope. You will cope, it will make you stronger, you will need some support, but don't think that, oh my God, it's nothing happening, and then suddenly you get hit by all this emotion, your emotion is already here. Will it bump a bit up high? Yes, but if you're used to the emotion being here, and you're in that anticipation, you're already grieving. And don't be surprised if you go a bit numb. Don't be surprised if actually when the day comes, you're not feeling what you were expecting to feel. It's all normal. You're already grieving. And I'd argue actually that the painful moments have already, the most painful moments have already happened. And it's just another chapter in your grief journey. Mm. I'll just quickly add, I've had a couple of cases where a client was, um, preparing for a loss of a loved one and they came in and they you know it's funny we're talking about managing emotions and they were saying I want to get work through all my grief so that when this does happen when I do leave leave this sorry lose this family member I want to be fine right I want to be ready for it I want to be fine and and a big part of me educating them is to remind them you can't pre-grieve and have it done. It's not a package deal. You, I mean, I think sometimes when we are afraid of our emotions, we want to try and get it all out of the way and solve it all and fix it and, and so that we don't have to feel. But it's important to understand that um, that's not going to be so successful, right? Um, and to give yourself permission to just feel what you're feeling and, and seek a grief counselor or seek a grief support group because often being around people who are in a similar situation can take a lot of the pain away. Yeah. Uh, when I was grieving, seeking a therapist, was, it was really important for me to have that, uh, to be able to share with them. Uh, and also I'd say that um, a lot of people, they, they, uh, they can end up blaming themselves. They haven't reacted to the loss the way that they think they would. Um, there is no one way to react, is there? No. No, and most people dissociate when they lose someone, so uh, and that dissociation can last a week. So if you're at the funeral and you're not crying, you're not feeling anything, that's dissociation. That's not you being a bad person. 
Mm. Uh, and if people around you are crying, you're feeling numb, that's okay. Don't don't start analyzing, and particularly you OCD crowd, don't analyze your emotions in those times because you are still feeling something, feeling nothing, still feeling something. It's because you're dissociating, yeah. and that means you care so much. Right. You're not feeling anything. It's because you care so much. Mm. One thing, if I'll just add, is one thing that I have, there's a whole chapter in my book around grief. Self-promoting your book. <laughs> yeah. Did you say start or stop? I didn't stop. Oh, start. I would say start. Go. Go, Kim. <laughs> I thought you said start, but your voice, got, your, your tone got me confused. <laughs> Um, one of the chapters in the book is around grief, particularly for people who have anxiety and OCD. One of the most important stages of grief, which is normal for everyone, is the bargaining stage, which is where you naturally will go, what could I have done? How could I have fixed this? That's a normal stage of grief. People with anxiety tend to get stuck in that stage because bargaining is looks a lot like mental compulsions, Right. Could I have done? What could I have done? Was it my fault? How could I, what, you know, what if, what if, what if? And so if, if you can have somebody to support you through that bargaining stage, like Josh said, you will go into denial and shock. You will have rage. You will have ang- anger and depression. But the bargaining stage is an important one to get support because you can get stuck in that in reviewing what could I have done? How could I have changed it? And it's an important piece. Yeah. That's really important. Uh, Guys, a couple more, and then I think we'll uh, call this one a day. Um, anxious in public, especially during school, uh, where panic attacks happen. I'm afraid to tell my teacher uh, because my teacher says that I have to sit with it and not leave the classroom when anxious. The teacher says not to leave? Yeah. Uh, what do you guys think? To be honest, like, I've, I've heard, in the UK, I've heard some... Um, not so helpful advice in the schools. Uh, go to your head of year. If they're not helpful, go to your school nurse. If they're not helpful, go to deputy management. If they're not helpful, go to the head teacher. If they're not helpful, move schools. <laughs> <laughs> it's so varying across the school spectrum because we're still learning about mental health. Uh, some schools are fantastic. Some of them are not. And um, yeah, you find someone you trust, um, and, and and confide and, and confide maybe in them and explain to them what's happening. Yeah, if you, I yeah, I consult often with other clinicians, and and I've heard a couple of these cases in the US. Um, excuse me, just one second. And um, what that was really helpful is if you do have a therapist, therapists can speak with teachers, right? If you can get a release, um, even going to your school counselor in the United States, there's most schools will have a counselor. And if you can go to them and go with the counselor or the therapist to the teacher and just educate them. Now, we're not wanting to say you can leave the class anytime you want because that can become avoidance in and of itself. But I think it is okay for you to take a second or two, take a breather, gather yourself you know, I think it's okay to have that accommodation. And in the United States, anyway, you can very easily get accommodations for your mental struggles. Um, I think it's almost, I think in most states, it's against the law not to have accommodations for mental struggles. Um, so I, I would go straight to your school counselor. What do you mean by? Hmm? 
What do you mean by accommodations? So um, in the way that the school systems run, unless you're in a private school, is that you can ask for certain accommodations based on your case, whether that be a learning disorder, a mental illness, and so forth, physical um, physical disorder. And so those accommodations then go through the school. They're actually, you apply for them. So a lot of my students will get accommodations for extra time on class, uh, on tests if they've got panic attacks or OCD or so forth. They're not asking to be, you know, get off scot-free. They're asking for accommodation so that they can use their tools throughout it. And, and in the United States, they should be able to have accommodations for mental illness. I think in the UK, Josh, um, obviously uh, for certain uh, men, mental um, like learning dis- uh, disabilities, and uh, we have certain aspects of that. But for mental health, I haven't really heard anything. I think a lot of work needs to be done in the education system. There's loads, but I know this will apply to the US and the UK, and this is my inner Drew cynic coming out. Um, and it's the sense that don't just expect, and I, and I, and I truly mean this, I'm not, I'm not bashing the profession, but I used to be a governor of a school. I don't know how it works in the US, but in the UK, we've got school governors, which are elected people to govern the school and how it's going and you employ the head teacher and and, and you do all these things but don't just just your school counselor might not be educated in anxiety disorders and i know the vast majority of school counselors in this country are not educated in anxiety disorders Mm. so take kim's advice but maybe actually take the advice of even a private anxiety disorder or someone who knows who can communicate with the person in your school about what is actually happening with you because in the in the UK, a lot of school counselors are great. I'm not bashing them. I love you. I'm glad, I'm glad you're there. You sit there and you listen to a lot of bad things and you support the children. I love counselors. But when it comes to about anxiety disorders, sometimes they're not trained in that modality. Uh, and so what happens is we end up kind of going around in this loop. And I know because I've been called in sometimes with, with some people and saying, no, actually, they have an anxiety disorder. And yeah, you're right. And telling them that they shouldn't avoid, but actually they need to know why. And they, everyone needs to know why this is important. Yeah. Um, so yeah, like don't don't put all your faith in the school counselor or the school nurse. You, but do put your faith in someone who understands your condition and you feel understood. Then get them to communicate in your school um, what's happening with you. That's that's my solid advice. <laughs> when you're a governor, do you have like a special hat? Yeah. No, I used to go dress <laughs> like a, a powdered wig. I feel like should be. I feel like it right? needs to be like a king's hat or something with some gold. Oh no, no, no! I used I used to go dress like this, and there was always free food. And during the meeting, I'm still eating. I'm like, and then was like, Josh, what do you think? I'm like, what? I just have this image with you with a staff. You've got a staff and a cloak, and you're the governor. Yeah, yes, exactly actually, right. yeah, that's what actually happened. So I hope everyone can imagine that. A staff, a big red <laughs> robe, a wizard staff. Yes, <laughs> I, I have images. That's a perfect place uh, to finish this week's recovery. <laughs> uh, Sorry, I had to ask. It was important. It was important. I need to know too. <laughs> what are you working on this week, um, and where can people find you? Uh, this week I am working on the launch of my book, which will be called the self-compassion workbook for OCD. Um, it'll be out in October 1st. 
um, through New Harbinger Publications. I this week, um, if you want to get hold of me, you can see my account here on Instagram. It's Kimberly Quinlan, or you can get my free resources at cbtschool.com. Josh, are we working this week? Uh, we are working. Um, I'm going to be uh, working on the powerful emotions that, have, <laughs> that are revoked from reading my own books. And that if you want to have those powerful emotions too, then go check them out and tangle your anxiety. Also, it's really nice to have an OCD specialist writing about up-to-date books in the form of the amazing Kimberly Quinlan. I will also be spending the week in anticipation of this book rather than sitting and reading books from the 1960s and 70s by Albert Ellis and pretending that they're the only way out of an, an OCD uh, anxiety disorder because I'm not an idiot. Actually, I'm aware that other things happen. What am I talking about? Who knows? Over to Drew. <laughs> Who knows? Delightfully vague. <laughs> I, I, I endorse that message. You, so funny. you say that with your staff, and I will. Yeah. I'll be listening. Yes, it should. There should be a crown for sure on that. For sure. Um, this week, what am I doing? So, seven percent slower is being formatted now. So that's really close to being released. September fifteenth, plus or minus a day or two, depending on what Amazon and Jeff Bezos decide to do. So uh, this morning, we completely populated the launch team. Like over right now, it's 160 people are looking to like do advanced reviews. So I'm really excited about that book, which you can find at 7percentslower.com. And if you want to find me here on Instagram, it's just the.anxious.truth. And by the way, Kimberly's book is spectacular. Like I've learned so much from reading it. I'm privileged to have been able to read it ahead of time. Uh, and if you look at the beginning of 7% Slower, you see some words of wisdom from young Josh Fletcher here too. So that's yeah. exciting. I've heard yeah. it's the best part of the book, to be honest. I'm not going to so, I mean, I couldn't, you know what? I couldn't put down the forward. I just kept rereading it. No, <laughs> I, Drew, your book was so wonderful. I loved reading it. So funny. So funny. Oh, by the way, before, but before we sign off, I just want to give a shout out to Mother Teresa, if she's still here, for showering multiple days in a row. I did see that comment and I know how big a deal that is. Not from a hygiene standpoint, from a fear standpoint. Go get him, Mom, Mom Teresa. Fantastic. Enjoy uh, your weekend, guys, and thank you for stopping by. Thanks, Later, everybody. Happy Friday. You've been listening to DLC Live. Be sure to follow Dean on Instagram at DLC Anxiety. Check our website at dlcanxiety.com and grab yourself a copy of our latest book, Untangle Your Anxiety, on Amazon today. See you next time.